Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and I'm excited to have uh, an episode for you tonight. We've, we've got a lot of things we're going to be covering. Uh, we might even touch on something called intranasal promiscuity <laughs> if we get a chance. Um, now which, you're going to act, Jamie. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yes. it's, it's something we should probably talk about. It, it, those of you that have seen the article that I posted over on the um, the Facebook group uh, is actually from my local health department who had to post a warning that they were giving out free COVID tests, but that people were not to use one COVID test for the entire family. Um, <laughs> and Joe, this is, this is apparently based because people misunderstood how pool testing works. Can you explain the difference yeah. between pool testing and using a single swab and test for a family of five? <laughs> Sure. So I love intranasal promiscuity. That has got to be the word of 2022. Um, so the the concept of pool testing is that you gather a bunch of samples uh, and you mix the uh stuff all together and then you test it, right? So you do like 10 you mix together the results of like 10 different swabs and then you would test that. And if, if, if it turns positive, then, you know, at least one person in those 10 is positive and therefore you need to go back and retest all 10 of those individually to figure out who it is. But from the standpoint of efficiency, as opposed to having to do, you know, 10 individual tests. So it's a lot more efficient and quick. So pool testing makes sense. The downside to what those folks were doing is using <laughs> the same swab uh, and sticking it in various family members' nose and then doing the test. And so it, it is a pool test. The problem is if anybody in that family is positive, Everybody that used the swab after that person just inoculated themselves with the virus. <laughs> and um, uh, any attempts to, you know, try to uh, isolate uh, and and pull out that person that was positive are now irrelevant because they've all literally swapped each other's noses with the, each other's noses. So uh, that is not the right way to do pool testing. And my favorite uh, quote from the post is intranasal promiscuity is both gross and yields inaccurate results. So. <laughs> Very PC. Yes. It, it didn't say you can't fix stupid, you know. No. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it, it's not the right way to do it. You know, if you could each individually do a swab and then you had a way, particularly if you're using the home test, like the, you know, the cards, uh, the antigen test, you know, the problem with those is you can't, you can't stick but one swab in the card and make it work. You can't put six of them in there. So there's no way to sort of mix them all together uh, to, to be able to test the whole family all at once. But anyway, not a bad idea, just not the right way to execute that idea. Uh, that's negative. Okay, well, we have uh, Miss Becky on tonight, and we pulled Mr. Kyle Nelson out of his hiatus for the winter uh, due to our topic tonight. 
But Becky, I hear there's a nor'easter coming, and uh, Jamie doesn't think it'll be a big deal. What do you think? Uh, well, it's not going to be a big deal for Jamie. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a big deal elsewhere. Um, looks like just a graze for, for you there uh, in the, the D.C. area, Jamie. Um, but Boston, eastern Massachusetts, the Cape, they're going to get pretty crushed by this. Um, I don't know that there are any, are any blizzard warnings out just yet. We're still a little ways out from the storm, but those are certainly anticipated, um, at least for parts of southeastern New England there in like western Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Um, could see upwards of a foot and a half, maybe even two feet in places and howling winds. So if you're planning, just don't plan to travel. Um at any point, um, basically late Friday, early Saturday through probably Sunday it will be very, very difficult um, travel for most of coastal New England, all of coastal New England. <laughs> oh, boy. So, Kyle, as much snow as we're, we have in the front range, we got some more today. I imagine you're uh, up to your eyeballs up there in the high country. Uh, actually, Sam, quite the opposite. Uh, past really? couple past couple storms that have come through have really favored uh, at least Colorado, right? Have favored areas along and east of the Continental Divide, including the Front Range of Colorado. So we've gotten uh, some of that spillover and a few flurries here in the Central Mountains where I'm located, but uh, otherwise, yeah, nothing much to speak of. And you've been having all the fun these past couple of weeks. Well, I wouldn't call ice skating in my SUV fun, but thank you. It's all about perspective, Sam. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of snow, um, it was suggested in our community that we talk about altitude illness. So we're going to let you and Joe bounce that back and forth, and we'll just make comments. But let's start out with what is considered high elevation to the extent that people can be affected by it, and are there different issues at different levels and we'll let you start kyle oh that's a great question sam so right we're talking about acute high altitude illnesses right and those are things that range from acute mountain sickness sometimes abbreviated ams uh, which is definitely more of an inconvenience all the way up to right high altitude cerebral edema and high altitude pulmonary edema um, either of which could uh, potentially be fatal so right typically we see high altitude illnesses in people that live at or near sea level and then travel uh, to high altitudes. And, and that can be very relative depending on other, uh, other pre-existing conditions those folks may have, right? Uh, some of the research uh, referencing uh, Seth Hawkins' uh, Wilderness EMS textbook here shows that acute mountain sickness can occur at 6,500 feet, usually not until 8,000 feet above sea level. But I'll tell you, uh, I've, you know, having flown through Denver airport well over 300 times in my career so far, uh, there are people that are experiencing, you know, very mild symptoms of acute mountain sickness due to coming from sea level, coming straight to altitude, and not preparing themselves accordingly. And that's at just over 5,000 feet. So, right, most of what we'll see, though, is uh, ex exacerbations of chronic medical illnesses, and which are far more common than altitude illness. So your thoughts on that, Joe? I think he's exactly correct. Um, you know, generally, uh, uh, it, it is a, a bit of a spectrum as to the altitude at which you'll begin to be symptomatic and has a little bit to do with um, 
other medical illnesses that you may have uh, and medications that you might be on, that sort of stuff. Uh, but can certainly start uh, as low as uh, five or 6,000 feet. Generally, about 8,000 feet is usually where um, the um, mountain sickness Ill and Ill other illnesses that were uh, Kyle talked about are expected. And then it gets worse, of course, as you go to even higher altitudes, particularly if you are not acclimatized to those high altitudes. Well, it helps us in Colorado because we got all these extra red blood cells. <laughs> We've acclimatized, and we'll talk more about that later on what that means. But so, Joe, you you brought up the uh, concept of people's ordinary illnesses. What kind of people are actually more at risk for altitude sickness? Well, there's there's not a, a specific set of issues. You know, folks who have underlying lung illness, hypertension, maybe diabetes, um, uh, conditioning may have a little bit to do with it as well, although highly conditioned athletes can certainly get mountain sickness uh, as well. It really has to do with um, how, how your body is able to adapt to the lower oxygen level uh, and lower pressures that are common at higher altitudes. And so if, um, uh, you know, if, if you've lived at a intermediate altitude for some period of time and had a chance to adapt a little bit, you're much less likely to have problems when you go higher uh, than if you're, uh, as Kyle mentioned earlier, you're coming from sea level where uh, you have the least amount of adaptation. So all of those different factors could play into your chances of becoming symptomatic with acute mountain sickness. Is um, pregnancy an issue? Uh, pregnancy would be a, a, an additional factor that can make it worse just because you're already um, uh, some of the changes of pregnancy might be advantageous to you. Uh, others could be detrimental to you. I don't know in general sort of how, how well those kind of cross each other out. Um but, you know, lower blood pressure and uh, other issues that are common in pregnancy may well be offset by the slight increase in um, uh, blood volume and red cell volume and all that sort of stuff. So pregnancy could could be uh, influenced there as well. And, of course, you always have to worry about the potential impacts on the fetus at the same time. Right. Jamie, you had a comment? Uh, no, I have actually have experienced altitude illness. Um went to visit um, some family in Jackson, Wyoming, and it was the summertime, but we went and rode the tram they have up to the top of the, the ski resort um, mountain summit, uh, which took us up to just around 10,000 feet. And right after I got up there, I started just experiencing dizziness, nausea, um, and just had to come back down on the next trip. Um, while the rest of the family was fine. So, you know, there's, I don't, didn't necessarily have any pre-existing conditions to speak of at the time, but it is really interesting to see, you know, how quickly it, it struck, um, you know, just as soon as just pretty much within 15 minutes of arrival at the summit. So, so Becky, you had a similar experience on Pike's peak, huh? Yeah, you can take or you could take a train up Pikes Peak. Um, we did this back in 2014, and it it wasn't 
so much that we needed to leave right away. Both Dan and I were just really kind of lightheaded, like fuzzy, foggy brained. We stayed up for maybe like an hour and got, you know, hot chocolate, cookies, took pictures. But like it was sort of like a weird just fuzzy experience. I don't have good memories of it, really, because your brain just, you know, I think the, the oxygen is it's just off. <laughs> Not enough red blood cells, huh? Yeah. How about you, Kyle? Absolutely, Sam. I definitely experienced it here. And right, considering, uh, right, it's a little bit deceiving, right, when you can get on a plane in Atlanta, Georgia, and fly directly to Aspen, where the valley elevation of the airport is 7,800 feet above sea level, right? It's not like the mountains in Europe, where the valley floors are much low. Uh, there's a much greater difference between the valley floor and the mountain peaks as compared to here in the Rockies. So it can definitely be deceiving. And uh, yeah, coming back from extended visits with family uh, back in the Midwest, uh, it, I definitely noticed, even just for a couple of days, that it took me a while to reacclimatize. Hmm. That's kind of surprising since uh, you're very well acclimatized. Jamie, you have a question. Yeah, and I'm not sure if this is best for Joe or maybe even Kyle. Um, and I'll, I'll ask Kyle first, actually. Um, have you ever encountered people that have had altered mental status from this to the point that they've been difficult to, to manage from a patient care standpoint? Uh, it's, I can recall Jamie, only one occasion where yes, I, we did encounter that type of patient and, uh, acute mountain sickness and right was one of those factors, but, uh, right. As with, right. And it was easy to just say, oh, you know, given that the short history that I obtained that they may likely be experiencing it and right. We could have completely written that off as altitude illness, but there were other substances on board that were also altering the mental status of that patient. So, right, making sure that, you know, when you go back to your differential diagnosis, right, look at what could possibly be causing that altered mental status and don't always just write it off simply because you're at altitude. Uh, good point. And yes, I remember having a few of those when I worked ski patrol. Uh, and there, you know, the way Becky describes it makes a lot of sense. Uh, my head is fuzzy. So what do you think on that, Joe? Well, I, I think, again, Kyle hit, hit the hit the nail on the head there. You know, there's there's obviously lots of confounding stuff going on there from uh, the hypoxia that you're experiencing uh, that's resulting in acute mountain sickness to uh, I had a couple of drinks at the bar and I did some edibles while I was there. And, uh, you know, uh, oh, by the way, I'm diabetic. Uh, you know, all <laughs> of those things are going to factor into, uh, you know, the potential for a substantial alteration in mental status. And uh, that can be manifested as everything from lethargy to agitation and um, aggressiveness and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, these folks can be a real challenge uh, to take care of when they're in those situations. So, Kyle, AEIOU tips. Yes, uh, a monomic that uh, can be used to sort of inspire a provider in the moment, right, to see, you know, what are some possible causes for altered mental status? And, and just to go through it really quickly, uh, right, um, right, alcohol or perhaps uh, acidosis, if we're dealing with a, uh, a diabetic, 
um, right? Something with the environment or epilepsy could be uh, be part of that. Uh, infection could alter someone's mental status, right? Uh, due to you know sepsis and starting to affect the brain. Um, overdosing uh, or oxygen deficiency, uh, right? Uremia is another um, trauma. Again, insulin. Thinking back to uh, diabetics, uh, uh, poisons or other psychogenics, as well as stroke and shock. Very good. That was a good reminder. And yes, um, you know, I remember in a number of cases, be it diabetics or whatever, they're they're out of their element. They, you know, before they had insulin pumps and all of that, um, they're exercising more than they're used to. They're at altitude, and they may be drinking alcohol that they're not used to. Um, they're not eating as much as they should. So, you know, there's a lot of things about going to the mountains and skiing that really kind of throw them in terms of their maintenance. What are your thoughts on that, Joe? Uh, well, I, I think that's the great mnemonic. Uh, you know, the only other thing I can think of is, and it was sort of covered there, is ethanol uh, is another one of those that... Uh, fits into that uh, AEIOU tips uh, approach there. So, uh, you know, and I think that's just part of the process you have to go through is you have to look at all of those potential issues, realizing that in probably the majority of cases, it's a combination of many of those things, not just uh, acute mountain sickness alone. Jamie. So, I mean, treatment, is it just really as simple as getting them to a lower altitude or is there, pos is there a potential for a more lasting um, uh, negative outcome um, for prolonged exposure? Well, the prolonged hypoxia can, can certainly uh, result in moving from uh, the discomfort and um, uh, inconvenience of fairly minor symptomatology, sort of like we were talking about tonight, to, you know, true changes in uh, mental status, including uh, ultimately brain edema uh, and uh, uh, acute pulmonary uh, edema as well. So there's high altitude pulmonary edema, HAPE, H-A-P-E, and uh, there's high altitude um, uh, illness that uh, truly affects the brain and causes uh, uh, edema in the brain. So it, 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 much like other environmental illnesses, whether where it's a spectrum of disease, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, heat stroke, heat illness, and uh, that sort of stuff, that they tend to sort of progress. So as those symptoms begin to come on, folks need to be aware that that may be part of what's going on. Uh, uh, supplemental oxygen may help, um, and and then literally getting them back down to lower altitudes, which does two things. One is it increases the 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 pressure of uh, uh, the atmosphere around them, but it also increases the uh, oxygen level uh, around them as well. So both those things are beneficial. So Kyle, before we get to Hape and Hayes. Uh, we talked about the minimal symptoms and how they may be confused with other things. But what about moderate or severe AMS before we get into the more serious stuff? What do those people look like? 
Yeah, definitely, Sam. Right, recognition and identifying symptomology consistent with acute mountain sickness is is absolutely key, right? And and right when we're looking at acute mountain sickness, um, that's really we're looking at the presence of say like a headache and then at least one other brain mediated symptom like uh, right vomiting, nausea, fatigue, dizziness, lightheadedness, and even difficulty sleeping are symptoms of acute mountain sickness, right? And those may be overlaid with other just respiratory symptoms that are common at high altitude, right? Just because of the increased work of your your body and your body systems as it's acclimatizing and operating in that environment. And right, you also may see um, some abnormal physical findings as well in your assessment, such as uh, increased heart rate and uh, perhaps even elevated blood pressure as well. But what I would caution our providers or and remind our providers and even uh, right our, our ordinary uh, folks is that your oxygen saturation level or right your SpO2 measurement alone cannot be used to diagnose acute mountain sickness or if it may occur, right? Because anyone can buy one of those small little pulse oximeters that goes on your finger, right? And we could do a whole podcast, Joe, on right what you know how to actually you know interpret those readings and what that little machine is and is not telling us. And right, someone comes to you and says, "Oh, my my oxygen saturation is 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 low, lower than it normally is." Right? You got to dig into that. You can't take that number at face value, Joe. Well, once again, Kyle is Kyle is right. You know, there's a lot of different factors that play into that. Uh, and uh, again, as he mentioned, it tends to be sort of a continuum of illnesses that lead to the more severe um, <laughs> problems of uh, haste and hate, uh, which are uh, much more acutely life-threatening and, you know, may well require hospitalization and um, you know, much more aggressive care than uh, just the issues that we were discussing earlier. Well, let's jump into those. So, uh, Kyle, you take HAPE. Tell us what it is, how it happens, uh, how serious is it for these people? Definitely. So, uh, HAPE, right, H-A-P-E, the acronym for High Altitude Pulmonary Edema, right? This is a, uh, it's a non-cardiogenic form of, of pulmonary edema, and it's um, it's the most common severe high altitude illness, as well as the most common cause of death from high altitude illness. Right? We typically it presents with fatigue, weakness, uh, dyspnea, right, or shortness of breath on exertion, as well as a uh, a non-productive cough. Right, and it uh, can even occur sometimes without some of the other symptoms of uh, you know of acute mountain sickness, but typically these two uh, will, will go hand in hand. Uh, typically, the high-altitude pulmonary edema uh, comes on quite suddenly. Um, typically, after a, the second night at altitude, and most people experience this and, and start to realize that they, they're not getting better when they wake up and have uh, you know increased labor or work of breathing. And this is, uh, you might, if you have a stethoscope, right, and you listen to some of these patients, they can sometimes even have uh, crackles if you're auscultating uh, lung sounds. And of course, a late sign of this is a cough with one of my favorite phrases, pink frothy sputum. <laughs> Yay. Yes, I remember that one. Um, what about, and I remember discussion about this, but I don't really remember the outcome. 
and Joe can jump in on this too, but what about someone who has been at altitude, has you know suffered some symptoms, and then jumps on a plane and comes home and gets very sick when they get there, so they call 911. How would a field medic at a lower altitude is it possible this person can still be suffering from it? Or, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting question. So, Kyle, you can finish that one. Hmm. Uh, you know, Sam, having not worked many of those patients, um, I'd, I'd only be, be speculating and thinking out loud. So I'm definitely going to defer to Joe on this one, but I think it really hints back at um, not right taking our patients at face value and those that are experiencing right a, a type of you know medical you know a medical complaint really getting a good history on that patient to determine you know what what's happened up to the point where they finally decided that they needed to call for help. So Joe, is there any issue with someone who's had an altitude issue getting on a plane and you know being in a, in a pressurized situation? Um, how long will they be affected by that? And will the flight affect them as well? Well, there's, there's an awful lot of different factors in there. You know, if you consider that most commercial airlines would be equivalent to about 5,000 feet of altitude in their cabin pressurization level, somewhere around there, um, and had you been symptomatic at 8,000 feet and then came down the mountain and got on a plane and went back to 5,000 feet equivalent, um, you know, you, you, you would have improved a little bit by coming down the mountain and then, of course, gotten on the plane and gone back to some uh, equivalency of altitude. So, you know, it, it could uh, slow your recovery. It could make things flare up a little bit, et cetera. In general, the the recovery time tends to not be too long. It, uh, the, the key is how long does it take you to get back, you know, from 12,000 feet to 4,000 feet so that you uh, can begin the recovery process. And if you're climbing Mount Everest, obviously that can be, you know, two days worth of work uh, as opposed to uh, jumping on a cable car and, you know, dropping several thousand feet in altitude in just a few minutes. So. Yeah, I've watched some of those uh, those Everest shows, and uh, these people get seriously sick, and they don't see it coming. You know, they're they're acclimatized, they're you know climbers that have been doing this for years, and all of a sudden it just hits them. But Jamie, you made a, a point about history. Yeah, and and Kyle alluded to it, and and Joe has as well. It just really comes down to really asking the right questions and getting a thorough history and trusting when something doesn't feel right based upon your read of the, the, the symptoms and signs you're seeing to continue asking questions. I think that's just so important for uh, people in any level of, of healthcare to really be not be afraid to kind of ask the question and, and simple thing of just saying, have you traveled recently? Is, is something that you can just add to every assessment, I think, um, because you never know when travel could figure into anything from infectious diseases to altitude sickness to um, finding out they've been scuba diving recently. And we've covered that on this show. So I think all those things are, are really important and come down to really getting a thorough history. 
Yeah, if we want to get really complex, we can talk about the guy that's uh, scuba diving one day and gets on a plane and then goes to the mountains. <laughs> but we won't go there. Um, Becky, do you have any questions or thoughts so far? No, I've just been learning a lot tonight. <laughs> this is all very new to me, aside from the fact that I have experienced some level of this. <laughs> well, good. Then we're meeting our goal on education. Um, so, Joe, what about high-altitude cerebral edema? Well, similar uh, conceptually to what Kyle described, except in this case involving uh, the brain, and essentially you get uh, sort of changes in the capillary permeability in your brain. And what that means is that fluid uh, infiltrates into the brain tissue uh, and causes swelling. Uh, and that increases the pressure inside your head and affects how well your neurons work. And uh, that can potentially be obviously quite serious because uh, there's obviously a limited amount of space inside your skull. Uh, and as your brain swells, it has to go somewhere. Uh, and sometimes that swelling of the brain results in the brain being pushed on by the skull and sometimes in uh, particular areas of the brain that affect uh, very important things like uh, maintaining your heartbeat, blood pressure, breathing, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, those folks can uh, get enough brain swelling or edema uh, that can result in uh, compression of certain areas of the brain and uh, potentially life-threatening problems associated with that. So I imagine that's similar then to what we might see in a head injury where they have intracranial pressure from trauma, right? You are correct. Um, it, it, it looks clinically very similar to that. Um, yeah, the physiology of this is interesting. I mean, you know, and who might be predisposed to HAPE and who may be predisposed to HACE. Um, but don't these people also have issues with coordination and, you know, that kind of thing? That yeah, might, might be a key to the person assessing them? Ataxia? Uh, yes, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, anybody that, that's having uh, swelling in the brain, particularly swelling in the part of the brain that uh, is low and, and uh, the concerns over things like ataxia or difficulty with gait, and some of the more um, rudimentary um, effects, not effects, but rudimentary uh, processes that the brain handles like coordination and, um, uh, you know, blood pressure, ma maintaining, uh, sustaining life in general uh, can be affected as well. So you can often see uh, patients having difficulty with sort of not only a sense of dizziness or lightheadedness, but truly an inability to coordinate their muscles adequately to take a step or two, or feeling like the, um, you know, they're walking sideways or uh, they, they simply can't coordinate their limbs to be uh, smooth and um, responsive to uh, a normal gait and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that can be a very significant sign of uh, pretty significant brain edema and illness. So for people that seem predisposed to AMS, is there any treatments they can take 
or things they can do prior to going up into altitude? Well, the the primary treatment is acclimatization so that you don't get it in the first place. That is just spending time at an intermediate level altitude uh, and letting your body adjust. That may take a week or so. Um, there uh, are... Uh, you can do some preventative stuff like uh, limit the amount of physical exertion that you might do uh, when you initially arrive at high altitude uh, so that you're giving your body a chance to acclimatize a little bit as well. There have been some evidence that uh, some diuretic medications like acetazolamide uh, can be beneficial, um, particularly for the Mora more edema-related issues, uh, HAPE and HACE in this case, uh, that may be uh, beneficial uh, in reducing the, the chances of those two more serious conditions. Um, I, uh, and other than that, it's, it's um, you know, getting back down to uh, a lower altitude so that the, uh, uh, the effects are of the uh, altitude differences are less. So, Kyle, I bet you can add to that. Well, Joe hit on a lot of it, right, including the uh, the pharmacology side of it. But uh, right, just right uh, as the mountaineers say, right, climb high or play high and stay low. And right, being at that uh, stay at that intermediate altitude. So, if uh, I have friends or family or or if others are coming in, right, I recommend if they're flying through Denver, right, do a night in Denver and then come up to altitude, right, especially if they know that they've experienced um, altitude sickness or altitude related symptoms previously. Also, two things that hurt acclimatization are uh, lack of hydration. So, making sure that you do stay uh, hydrated with the the dry air as you go up in in altitude here in the mountains and also limiting alcohol intake. Um, some of uh, my early trips to Colorado, I didn't follow that rule and had a very difficult time acclimating and and staying uh, energized and alert at altitude. And, you know, I chose to, you know, enjoy the, uh, the, the fine brews of Colorado uh, before I, my body was truly ready for it. And uh, some of the most uh, interesting calls I've had uh, back when I was a dispatcher were folks that came to altitude, started playing a little bit too hard right away, and got in over their head. Oh, yeah. What about eating carbs? I remember them telling us that was a good thing to do. What does that do? You know, I really think that just that gives the body the energy to, uh, you know, those those carbs to burn when you're at altitude and, and the body's just working harder to right to, to acclimatize and, and to work in that environment with less oxygen in, in the atmosphere. And so, you know, eating well is also a huge thing, right? And it also, it helps your body to, to regulate the rest of its systems as well. So uh, it can, you know, operate effectively here when it's, when you're placing a lot of stress on it simply by where you placed it. Would you agree with that, Joe? Absolutely. Nice description. There you go. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up here and uh, go to the mountains. So, Becky, any thoughts or questions? Uh, I just like to Kyle's point about um, drinking, because that's that's <laughs> something that, you know, I think a lot of people may not really realize. And, you know, you go to Colorado, ski town to have a good time. You're going to want to drink beer. Colorado is 
notorious for their high ABV beers. Um, so just a, a good thing to remember. And I, I, I just, I like Kyle's point of get to Denver, hang out for a day and then head into the mountains. Got to plan around the traffic anyway. So <laughs> good point. But yeah. Our, you know what was, they say? Everybody's a cheap drunk in Colorado. So. Oh, Kyle just put up an interesting article. Maybe Jamie will post that. Um, he developed haste and hape on the loop. Good grief. I have to hear more about that. I'll post a link to the article in the uh, show notes for this episode. Yeah, I'd like to read that myself. So, Jamie, it's all you. Oh, well, I just think this has been a fascinating episode. I really, really look forward to our our clinical episodes where we cover topics like this. Um, and really one of those times when we appreciate everybody's individual expertise that we bring to the table and uh, Kyle, thanks for being available on short notice for this. Um, I know you've been really super busy with the X Games and, and everything going on in, in your neck of the woods. Um, I, I watched a little bit of it over the last weekend, and, and everything seemed really great. So I hope that the event went off without a hitch. Yeah, Jamie, uh, X Games was uh, fast and furious up here. Uh, only three days of competition this year due to a little bit of a smaller field of athletes with the Winter Olympics coming up and some other factors. But yeah, it was a fantastic event and uh, we all had a great time and the uh, medical team once again triumphed uh, in the face of all the challenges that were put in front of us. Well, let us know when you have another night you can join us and we'd like to hear about that. Absolutely. And yeah, look forward to, to sharing about that. And uh, definitely um, for folks that are listening, please do uh, check out the article uh, here that I shared about a, an ultra runner uh, that developed uh, both high altitude cerebral and pulmonary edema uh, in less than a day here in the mountains just outside of Aspen. It's a, it's a really fantastic story and account where he actually shares his experience and you can sort of follow along with the symptomology as it progresses and before he realized it, it was a little too late. Wow. Definitely, Back to you, Jamie. Definitely have that <laughs> in, in the episode show notes. So we'll, we'll definitely have that for people to read up on. Um, just want to thank, uh, as always, Joe and uh, Paragon Medical Education Group for their continued support. Joe, um, you being available to kind of head, head up these clinical topics is one of the reasons that I think this show – does as well as it does and, and is followed by so many professionals out there in the healthcare field and the disaster response field. So I want to thank you for that. And it comes back to the type of education that you guys provide at Paragon. Uh, well, thank you, Jamie. Uh, I certainly love to teach and uh, obviously the, the clinical arena is where I feel most comfortable. So we we work hard to incorporate uh, those clinical pearls into all of our educational offerings. Uh, and uh, we're happy to talk with folks about how we can make certain that they're getting all of those clinical pearls that they'd like. Uh, all they have to do is reach out to us at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group, or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast. Thank you very much. And uh, Becky, where can folks find you? Uh, over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Thank you very much. And Kyle? 
Well, Jamie, folks can find me on uh, most major social media platforms, but especially Twitter and Instagram under the handle WX Kyle Nelson. Go back and check out some of the uh, X Games updates that I posted. I'd love to connect with our listeners and continue the conversation. Definitely. And, and um, you know, I think we'll be looking forward to that opportunity when you have some free time to come back on the show and and kind of give us an overview and after action on the planning and the the operational um, support that went into uh, having a successful event like the Winter X Games. Sam, Absolutely. Yeah. Sam, where can folks find you? Well, they cover just about every social media platform, but you'll find me on most of them under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, or you will find me mucking about in the uh, Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Jamie? And, of course, for me as well, on under the handle Podmedic, and um, I even started doing stuff on TikTok of all places, so we're having some fun over there. Um, but I do want to and want you all to find us over at DisasterPodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show. There are links to subscribe on whatever social media platform or podcast app or phone iOS or Android, um, we can get you subscribed and then you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes because we've got a lot coming up for you in the new year. And um, also over at our Facebook group where we post a lot of great articles, different things about disaster response from the pandemic to uh, following up on the article like we have in this episode on that um extreme endurance runner that Kyle mentioned. So we'll be talking about that and having that link over there as well. Um, Anyway, Sam, thanks for pulling this episode together. And I'm looking forward already to next week's episode because you just always seem to come up with some of the greatest topics. Yeah, sometimes I get lucky, but there's a lot of great people out there that uh, we like to grab and talk to. Um, I think the message on this is be prepared. If you're going into an arena that, you know, I guess we could say the same thing about scuba diving. Don't jump into that before you realize what you're getting into and, and, and know enough to know if you're having these kinds of symptoms that maybe you should go back down and that will keep you from getting sicker. And that's just one example of being prepared. 